So there's this uh, ridiculous little fable that I want to share with you very briefly uh, because of the point that it makes. Uh, this silly little fable is about three pastors having an argument. That, that's not the ridiculous part. Pastors argue all the time, I'm sure. But Pastor Bob is sure that he's right. The other two pastors, Carl and Dave, disagree. And so I, I'll make this little fable shorter than it uh, originally was to prove it. Uh, Bob prays aloud and he says, oh God, let lightning strike this tree to prove that I'm right. And, and immediately there's lightning from the sky, boom, this tree is burnt to a crisp. Uh, but Carl and Dave are not impressed by this at all and uh, doesn't change their minds one little bit. And so Bob prays again and he says, God, please do something else to convince them. And, and a voice from heaven rumbles, Bob is right. And Carl looks at Dave and he just shrugs and says, well, that makes it two against two. Now what? What happens in a world where God is just one more vote and not the final authority? What happens in a world where God is just another opinion taken on par with everyone else? Well, we're studying the Old Testament book of Judges, and this series is called Broken. And each of these chapters shows a very broken world, a world very much like our broken world today, and that's why we desperately need Jesus. This chapter that we're on today, chapter 19, describes one of the vilest scenes in the Bible, one of the most horrific events. And what's broken here in Judges 19 is the value of life itself. What we have here is a graphic example of what happens when God is just one more vote, one more opinion on par with everybody else. So here's how it begins, Judges 19 verse 1. In those days, Israel had no king. Now a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. So the lack of a king is something that's repeatedly mentioned in Judges. It's an issue because there's no spiritual authority in that land. There's no one to call people to account. Uh, no one to enforce God's law. And everyone, as Judges says several times, was doing what they saw and felt was right in their own eyes. They were their own king, their own moral judge. Now God was to be Israel's king, but they weren't interested in that. They ignored his commands, they forgot his ways. So we're introduced to two characters that uh, play the major role in this chapter. Very sad, but it's... A Levite who's a religious leader in Israel, a priest. That's who the Levites were. They were priests for God. And this woman, a concubine, we, we never learn her name in this story. But we know she is a secondary wife. That's what a concubine is. So in that day, uh, when uh, a wife could not produce children, some men 
then took concubines, the secondary wife. The concubine did not have full status as a wife, but her children were seen as legitimate. She herself had no uh, legal right in the house because she was a second-class spouse. So we have this priest, this religious guy, and a second-class wife. Now, if there were a top ten list of gruesome Bible stories, Judges chapter 19 would be at or near the top of that list. And what happens in this tale is is shocking and horrific. Now, I'm not going to say anything worse than what's written here, but uh, be warned, it's disturbing. The vileness of this story that we see in Judges 19 is is highlighted by the fact that those who are involved in the story have knowledge of the one true God. They are identified as His own people. So this chapter illustrates what happens when we push God to the margins of our lives. When God is not essential, but additional. When He's just one vote, one opinion among many. And frankly, that pretty well sums up what the United States of America is like today. So, here's how the story begins, verse 2. But she, that's the concubine, was unfaithful to him, the priest. She left him and went back to her father's house in Bethlehem, Judah. After she'd been there four months, her husband went to her to persuade her to return. He had with him his servant and two donkeys. She took him into her father's house, and when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. All right, so let's sort this out. This second-class wife cheats on her husband and then runs home to her father. Now, I want you to, to realize that there are hints in this story that her husband, the priest, may have abused her, may have Ill, mistreated her. And also, several times in the story later on, she's referred to as a girl. So there might be a big age difference between this priest and his secondary wife. Now, regardless of what else is going on, uh, what, what kicks this off is that she has sex with one or more people other than her husband and then left him. Now, the fact that the priest eventually, after four months, went to convince her to return, uh, some say indicates that, that he might have been at fault. In fact, I've read several sources that say what, what is pictured here seems to be classic signs of the pattern of abusive relationship. That after a violent explosion, uh, the husband apologizes, he brings gifts, he makes promises never to do it again, and turns on the charm and the woman relents. But what happens in those kinds of relationships is that eventually anger erupts again and the cycle starts all over. Uh, women should not stay in a situation of physical danger to themselves or to their children. Now, we're not told how the concubine responded to the visit from her husband, the priest, but she did invite him into her father's house and her father was thrilled. We see how he feels. And verse 4 his father-in-law, the girl's father, prevailed upon him to stay. So he remained with him three days, eating and drinking and sleeping there. So what transpires is a men's only party, so to speak. And the girl is ignored through this process. 
Uh, so after three days of, of eating and drinking and partying, the priest is trying to leave. He's trying to take his, his secondary wife and, and go back home. But the, the father insists that he stays and stay for another round of drinks and another round of feasting. And this goes on past three days to four days, then five days. He, he's insisting that this Levite stay. It, it's like Hotel California. You can check in anytime you like, but you can never leave. Finally, after all this feasting, partying, the Levite breaks away. Starts out on the journey, but they'd have to hurry because it's already late in the day. If they've got to get to a place of safety, they have to get moving along to a safe place before dark. That's the tension here. Now, as they journey, the text tells us that they passed by a city called Jebus that eventually would become the city of Jerusalem, by the way. But at that moment, it's in enemy hands. It's, it's held by a foreign power. And so the priest says, he, he decides he doesn't want to have anything to do with foreigners who don't worship his God. And so he passes by Jebus and keeps going so he can find an Israelite city where they worship his God. And they do. Verse 14. So they went on, and the sun set as they neared Gabeah in Benjamin. And there they stopped to spend the night. They went in and sat in the city square, but no one took them into his home for the night. You must appreciate that hospitality was a cultural necessity in the ancient world. There were no hotels. Uh, the custom was for a traveler to wait in an open space by the city gate or at the city well, uh, somewhere open, and, and wait for someone to an, extend an invitation. That's how it worked. And not to do that would be an insult. Not to do that would be an indication of, of bad character. And, and especially uh, among those who claim to worship the one true God. Uh, hospitality was commanded by God. Uh, Deuteronomy 10.18, for example, which, which says, Love the stranger and provide food and clothing for that stranger. Now since these were the people of God, that's why he went to the city, the priest expects a meal. He expects a place to stay. But there they sit, ignored by everyone. Until finally, there's one old man on his way home from work who sees this priest and his entourage, and in verse 20, he begs them not to spend the night in the square. And we get a hint now that, well, things might not be good here. This is not just about hospitality. He's concerned for them. He knows how bad their city is. How wicked it is. And so this old man takes them home. He allows them to wash up and they sit down to eat. And that's when real trouble begins. Verse 22. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. Now the word wicked, translated wicked here, the, the Hebrew phrase literally means sons of Belial. And that is, meaning these are people who rejected God's way. Now, they might have been Israelite in name or worshipers of God in name, but they rejected the way of God and they lived as they pleased. And this group of men wanted to use homosexual rape as a display of power, of domination, much like what might happen in prison today. And what's Disturbing even more is that this doesn't seem to be an unusual, unexpected occurrence. This city 
is in chaos. It doesn't have any moral authority. It's not safe for a stranger after dark. And these men hurl themselves at the door in an attempt to break it down. Now from this point on, the night turns more and more repulsive. Verse 23, the owner of the house went outside and said to them, No, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this disgraceful thing. Look, here's my virgin daughter and his concubine. I'll bring them out to you now, and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But to this man, don't do such a disgraceful thing. Now, this old guy we liked at first, right? He seemed like, well, at least there's one guy in this city that's okay. But it turns out he's as twisted and perverse as the rest. He does not see women as people, as human. Here's an old man willing to sacrifice his own daughter to this mob of depraved men. It makes no sense. Especially when the old man describes the intended assault on the priest as disgraceful. That's what he calls it. And yet he has no problem doing much worse. Offering two defenseless women to a mob. So that's his offer. Verse 25. But the men would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them. And they raped her and abused her throughout the night. And at dawn, they let her go. Well, if you had any doubt about the character of this priest, it should be removed. Wonder no more. He pushes his concubine outside. He discards her like so much garbage. She's become expendable. Why? So he can be safe. So he can escape danger. Her horror on that night, I don't think it can be imagined except by somebody who has endured something like that. Verse 26. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying. She fell down at the door and lay there until daylight. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house, and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let's go! But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. Now, you gotta, it's obvious, but I just want to make you appreciate what's happened here. She survives the attack. And don't miss the fact that the priest shoved her outside, and then was able to sleep the rest of the night. And he doesn't even open the door until he's ready to continue his journey the next morning. Think of how callous that is. And when he speaks, he shows no concern for her life or for her safety. There's no guilt or regret expressed in any way here. And it's at this point... You might notice a subtle difference here. He's referred to as her master. In other words, she's a possession. She's a thing. She's a slave of no value, no worth. And throughout this story, we never hear this woman's voice. None of her words are recorded. It's clear that this woman has no value to the priest, no value to the society that names the name of God. Now, if she's not already dead, we're not sure at this point. She's crawled to the door, 
during the night. But if she's not already dead, she will be very, very soon. The priest loads her limp body on the donkey and leaves. But he's not done. Verse 29, when he reached home, he took out a knife and cut up his concubine, limb by limb, into twelve parts, and sent them into all the areas of Israel. Well, this sounds like the actions of a serial killer, doesn't it? This is a priest. Why does he dismember her? This is a ritual dissection. And by sending a piece of her body to each of the twelve tribes of Israel, he's alerting the, the entire nation to their depravity. It's his way of advertising how bad things are. And he wants vengeance for the loss of his property. He doesn't treat her. He doesn't have, had she been alive. You know, he uses her as a message. Here's how bad things are. And he, this supposed man of God presents himself as a victim. But he's just as depraved as everyone else in the story. This priest is cowardly, godless, degenerate. And look how his message is received. Verse 30. Everyone who saw it said, such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelite came out of Egypt. Think about it. Consider it. Tell us what to do. So they say, this is horrible. In the whole history of our country, things like this have never happened before. We have to learn from this. What should we do to put a stop to this evil that pollutes our land? Now next week, Lord willing, we'll look at what they did, what the, how they followed up. We'll finish our series uh, from Judges by what they did. What about chapter 19, though? What's the point of this grisly story? Why would God include such gruesome material in the Bible? Well, number one, because it happened. Because it's true. But, but there's a lesson here. There's, there's something that we must gain even today from this. There are many things, actually. Focus on one. Well, by the way, did you notice how everybody in this story is horrible? There's really not a hero I mean, even the poor concubine commits adultery to start the story off. Uh, doesn't deserve anything that happened to her, but even she's not a hero. The father-in-law is a thoughtless fool. The priest is a heartless tool who sees women as expendable, disposable. And the old man isn't any better. And the citizens of Gabeah are unfriendly, inhospitable, sexual deviants. Violent. These are God's people. They name the name of Yahweh. And yet, even among them, hospitality is a joke. Marriage is a farce. Civil order is absent. The strong destroy the weak. There's no regard for human life. Now, remember, it's a story, early on in the story, the priest passed by one city because he didn't want to stay with a bunch of foreigners who didn't know God. Isn't it ironic that he got worse treatment in a city full of Israelites? So even though they were God's people, they lived however they wanted. They disregarded God's authority and His laws. They decided right and wrong for themselves. So this story asks the question, who is your king? 
Who is your king? This is a graphic example of the fact that nothing works when God is not king. Who is ruling your life? Who is deciding right and wrong and choosing what to do and who to follow and how to behave? We need a king. We need one who rules, who determines right and wrong. And God sent his son to be that king. When Jesus was born, he was called king of the Jews. Jesus, the, the perfect son of God, lived a perfect son of life, a perfect life in this world. Came into our world taking on humanity, one of us, sinless. And yet he was executed on a cross with a sign over it. His head that said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And on his body on the cross, he bore the sin of the world. The lies, the abuse, the lust, the fear, the hate, the rape, the greed, the gossip, the pride, the theft, the murder, the laziness, all sin, the penalty for sin, death, Jesus bore on himself. The wrath of God poured out on him. And with the sacrifice of his body through ritual dissection, the pouring out of his blood, he paid the price demanded. Death. But so that, for all who put their trust in Jesus alone, for all who throw themselves on God's mercy in Christ, there is forgiveness and peace and life and acceptance from God, adoption into his family. And so the crucified king did not stay in the tomb, but three days later walked out signaling the victory that all who trust in him have life and life forever. And now Jesus is seated in heavenly places ready to return and set up an eternal kingdom for he bears the title King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so here's a point. Where Jesus is king... All life has value. All life has value. And so to the extent that you honor and worship and serve and love King Jesus, you're going to know some things. You're going to see some things. For, for example, you follow Jesus and you will see that you are infinitely valuable. When you understand Jesus is king, when, when you worship, cast your life on him, follow him, then you know you are infinitely valuable. You, your life has meaning and purpose and significance. Live for Jesus and you will know that's true. Live for yourself and your soul will shrivel. And your value will be based on how things are going in your life, how healthy you are, your net worth, the number of friends you have, uh, what you achieve in life. That, that's what your value will be based on. But follow the king and know that your life has infinite value no matter what. Your own mother and father could abandon you, but the Lord will pick you up. You may be rejected by others, but God says he will never leave you. You may feel inadequate, like you've failed, like you've fallen too hard, too far, too many times, but the Savior will not throw you away. In comparison to others, you might not have much, you might not know much, you might not feel like much, but you are precious in the eyes of God. Acknowledge His authority, live under His rule, and know the value of your life. 
Because where Jesus is king, all life has value. And you know what else that means? It means that you follow him, you realize that all others are infinitely valuable too. All others. Now the characters in the story showed very little concern for anybody else. Even the old man, while caring about the priest, cared nothing for the concubine. And to the extent that Jesus reigns as your king, it will show in how you value all human life. I once published an article that included a story by Yale professor Miroslav Volf. And Dr. Volf, in his story, related how a Muslim woman, a teacher from Bosnia, became a victim of a brutal attack by Serbian, quote-unquote, Christians. These men who attacked her were her neighbors and her former students. They beat her almost to death and did despicable, vile things to her body. And they laughed the entire time. They screamed, You're good for nothing else, you stinking Muslim woman. So after this article came out that included this story, I received an angry phone call from a pastor in the Midwest. And he said, how dare you print a story about this Muslim woman being attacked? And I didn't understand. I said, isn't that a terrible thing that happened to her? And he agreed that it was, but he said this, why would you print a story about this one Muslim woman when those people are torturing and killing thousands of Americans. So as we talked, it was clear that for this Christian, not all life was equally valuable. And that is a tragic mistake. That's what happens when Jesus is not king. And it can happen to individuals, it can happen to churches, it can happen to nations. But where Jesus is king, all others have infinite value. Whether that life is white or black or brown, whether that life is in the womb or in a nursing home or a refugee camp, whether that life is female or male or transgender or gender confused, whether that life is wealthy or on welfare, whether that life is a gold medalist or a quadriplegic, whether that life is a non-English speaking immigrant or a daughter of the American Revolution, whether it's an in-law or an outlaw, whether it's somebody who gives you gifts or gives you grief, whether it's a life that loves Jesus or hates Jesus. You see, it's not about the things we make it about. It's not about who's president, it's about who's king. Who's king? And if you are king, then your vote is the one that matters most. If money is king, or family is king, or career, or winning, or politics, that's what counts. But people of God, we are here to celebrate and to remember that we have one true king. We're here to put aside preference for worship put aside our way of seeing things our estimation of what's important and we come to affirm that the only one we can trust we gather to praise the almighty one who gives life value so people of god join me today in acknowledging that we have a king and his name is jesus if you know this hymn would you stand and join with me in singing it all hail the power of Jesus' name. 
Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Let every kindred, every tribe on this terrestrial ball to him all majesty ascribe and crown him Lord of all. To him all majesty ascribe and crown him Lord of all. And we want to give you an opportunity this morning to respond to God. And so teams of elders and pastors are now going to take their places at these five stations. And I'll invite the rest of you to take a seat for a moment as these elders and pastors prepare to anoint with oil and pray for anyone who desires it. Let me explain what this is about. Anointing with oil in the name of the Lord is one of the ministries talked about in the New Testament. Anointing is joined with prayer for healing and wholeness among God's people. And once or twice a year, we open up this opportunity publicly for all who are in need of such prayer. We anoint with oil as a symbol of the presence and power of God. There's nothing magic about the oil. It is a symbol of God's power. And there are many different reasons you might respond today. If, for one, you aren't sure of your relationship with Jesus, come and ask how you can know that you have eternal life. Or if you are burdened with guilt, with sin, with shame, come and confess and hear the promise of forgiveness through Jesus. Or if you are sick in body, in mind, in spirit. Come for spiritual blessing, physical restoration, relational healing through the power of Christ. Or if you want to worship God because of or in spite of what's going on in your life right now, come and give Him praise. Let us join and bless God with you today. So in a moment, I'll invite you to come to one of these five stations. There are four here in the front. There's one in the back. If you would want to receive this ministry, you'll be asked if there's anything you would like to confess that, that might hinder you from receiving God's blessing. Then you'll be anointed and prayed over in the name of the Lord. In preparation for that, let me read this scripture. Speaking to God's people who are suffering or sick, James 5 says this, They should call for the elders of the church and have them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will heal the sick, and the Lord will make them well. Anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. Confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Now over these next few moments, anyone who desires this ministry is invited to come and receive prayer for healing and wholeness in Jesus' name.